God said, I want you to cry out against this so-called contemporary rock and roll, so-called Christian music in our churches. Y'all ready to rock? Awesome. Hello, I'm John J. Thompson, and we are back at the movies for this episode of the True Tunes Podcast. We sure have been talking about movies and Jesus music a lot lately, haven't we? We just got done with a three-part conversation about the music of The Chosen, which sure is technically a television series, though it feels like a film. And you've heard us talk a lot about Electric Jesus, both on this show and the special Electric Jesus podcast Bruce and I produced for them. We just explored the music of Jesus music pioneer Andre Crouch on the last episode, and back on the Natalie Bergman episode, Bruce and I went way down the Jesus music rabbit hole when we loaded up the jukebox with super early Christian music that demonstrated some of what was happening musically during the spiritual revival known as the Jesus movement of the late 60s and early 70s. You will believe and you will receive and be. We have several other shows in development, actually, and I had planned to steer us away from both movie talk and all this talk about Jesus music for at least a few episodes. If you've been listening to the show, I hope you know that our conversations often go way deeper than just music and definitely beyond Christian music, but an opportunity presented itself that I just had to jump on. First, after over five years of working with Chris White on Electric Jesus, which, if you somehow have not heard, is a fictional romantic comedy about a Christian heavy metal band in 1986, that movie is finally set to release widely on November 2nd. Also, a new documentary called The Jesus Music, for which I served as an interview subject and historian, releases theatrically on October 1st. So, just one month apart, we have a long-awaited documentary and a long-awaited comedy set in the sometimes strange world of Christian music, and I was somehow involved with both. I wondered if maybe I might be able to get the creative minds behind these two films, Andy Irwin of the Irwin Brothers team and Chris White, to sit down with me for a conversation about these films in particular, what each of them thinks of the other's project, as well as the broader issues related to people of faith trying to tell stories and make art these days. To my delight, they both quickly agreed to this proposed Jesus Music Movie Summit, and we actually found a time when all three of us were available. So on this episode of the True Tunes Podcast, you'll hear two very different types of filmmakers with two very different kinds of movies break it all down for us. Are you hearing what he's saying? Are you feeling what you're praying? Are you healing, praying, feeling what you say inside? You'd better tell your story Then, in a 
special jukebox feature, we attempt to offset all this talk about contemporary Christian music and even our previous deep dive into the annals of Jesus music by loading the jukebox with records that demonstrate Jesus rocking in the mainstream. While it's certainly true that modern CCM music and Christian rock music can trace its roots back to the Jesus movement, not all artists who came to faith decided to make music for the Christian market. And is the mainstream as cold to the message of faith as proponents of the culture wars have long wanted us to believe? This special feature, Jesus on the Mainline, demonstrates the alternate path, maybe the road less traveled actually, and we'll see where it takes us. All of that, and probably a little more, is coming up, right after we take care of a little bit of housekeeping. Welcome back to the True Tunes Podcast. For your sake, let us learn to wait on the Spirit's move. We know that the hour is so late, and you'll be coming. I'm so honored to have these two gentlemen on the show with me today. Andy Irwin, along with his brother John, recently formed Kingdom Story Productions with Lionsgate Films. They make faith-based films that are a notch above most in that genre, including Mom's Night Out, I Can Only Imagine, and I Still Believe, which is based on Jeremy Camp's life story, not the song by the call. They also made a surprisingly good film called Woodlawn that I came to late but ended up enjoying quite a bit. Set during the Jesus movement, but focusing on the true story of an Alabama high school struggling with racial segregation and injustice, Woodlawn stars Sean Astin of the Lord of the Rings fame, and it is loaded with what some would call secular Jesus music from the early 70s. I loved it, and it completely reframed my impression of the Irwins. Our listeners are by now very familiar with Chris White, but if you're new to the show, I encourage you to make sure to look up our Electric Jesus episode from last year. Electric Jesus is White's first full-length feature film, and it has taken him years to get it across the finish line. And to be clear, Electric Jesus is not a faith-based film. Though it comes from a spiritual perspective, it is built for everyone. Chris calls it faith-laced rather than faith-based. On behalf of those imprisoned by the state, or locked up by the shame of their own fate, let me tell you, you can be Barabbas, you can be Barabbas, you can be Barabbas too. 
I took a copy of Electric Jesus to Andy's screening room and watched it with him shortly after he interviewed me for his film. Chris got to watch a finished version of the Jesus music a couple of weeks ago. Then we gathered in the legendary True Tunes podcast virtual production suite for the following conversation. I have two experts with me today. First, uh, first time guest on the show, Mr. Andy Irwin of the famed Irwin Brothers and the director of the Jesus Music. Andy, welcome to the show. Yeah, John, great to be with you, man. And uh, and also a longtime friend and frequent uh, guest, Mr. Chris White of the Electric Jesus Podcast. Chris, welcome back to the show. It's always good to be with True Tunes, and especially awesome to be with you, Andy. We've never met, but I'm a fan of your work, and uh, this is really cool that we get to chat like this. Thanks for making this happen, John. Yeah. Thanks, Chris. Appreciate it, man. Andy, I'd like to start with you. Can you kind of tell me, I, I, I kind of gave the, a little bit of it away there, but the Jesus music is a documentary, but tell me uh, about the genesis of the idea and what, you know, what in the world you were thinking when you said, okay, we're going we're gonna to do a documentary about this. It's, I mean, it's obviously been 50 years since right. uh, this kind of peak moment in the zeitgeist that we call the Jesus movement. So um, what was it that inspired you to, to do this now? and tell us about the film as it is. Music, especially Christian music, is kind of where we kind of found our voice as filmmakers, starting with music videos. So we had a lot of fun over the years and then ultimately found our voice as filmmakers through uh, you know doing the movie I Can Only Imagine and I Still Believe. So we have a great affinity for it, but we never really thought about going back to our documentary roots. It wasn't really what we were looking at, but when COVID hit, everything got shut down and we're sitting around having a creative brainstorm session saying okay how can we tell stories in this time out and one of the team members just said nobody's looked at the comprehensive history of Christian contemporary music from the idea of kind of the the rebels that kind of started it and we just said everybody's off the road for the first time all these artists are off the road for the first time in music history at the same time and most of them are within five miles of our front door so we called up Smitty and, and Amy Grant and just said hey, is this something you'd be interested in? And they said, we would love to executive producer with you. And then everybody just started signing on board to kind of tell this comprehensive story, starting back in the 70s with these kind of radical freaks that found Jesus and became Jesus freaks, you know, in the hippie movement. And so telling that story and taking on those five decades from that standpoint of the crazy dreamers, it was a really romantic story kind of to tell. We, we, we really seeing that come to, come to life. How aware of the early days in the Jesus music scene were you before you got involved with doing this film? I was pretty aware of the early days, like the Jesus movement kind of side of things. 
with Explo 72 and all those kind of moments with Calvary Chapel before leading up to that point because we had included some of that in the movie Woodlawn and kind of hinted at it and it was a, kind of the fabric of that story. What I will always remember about Explo is the wonderful loving kindness that God has shown through all the people here. I think of all the places I've ever had the privilege of performing, this is probably the most important to me and one of the biggest thrills of my life to be able to be here. Explo 72 has been one of the greatest experiences of my life. But what really kind of was really surprising is I had never really dug into kind of the where that went from there, especially in the 80s, like the, the metal scene and kind of the Christian rock scene and telling the story of like Michael Sweet with Striper and some of those moments was just like, I, I was like a kid in a candy store because it was just so much interesting kind of human drama going on there. I remember when I walked into a thrift store and there was a record bin there. There was this one record in that bin it was this big red Maranatha sign on a white cover. It was called the Everlasting Living Jesus Music Concert. I picked it up and I turned it around and it was all these people with long hair. And I could tell all these songs were about Jesus. And I'm thinking, that's what I want to do. We made the album for about $4,000 with mastering and everything. And it went on to sell 200,000 units, you know, which is like unbelievable. There was no contemporary Christian music industry at all. That was just Chuck Smith saying, these kids need a record so that when they go somewhere and nobody gives them money, they can at least sell the record and have enough gas money to get home. We were lost in a world of darkness. We couldn't see the light. Our hearts were filled with sadness because we didn't believe in the man that was crucified. But I was I to know Chris, before we get into talking about Electric Jesus, you've had a chance to see the Jesus Music movie uh, recently. So what were your impressions of the film and what's your background actually as it relates to early Christian music and that kind of subculture and how do you relate to this story when you're talking about the real world as opposed to the world that we kind of invented for Electric Jesus? Yeah, I don't really have much of a, a, a background. I have a foreground. <laughs> I, or I just I just arrived in the present day, you know. At some point in the early '80s, I arrived with Michael W. Smith too, and there I was mm-hmm. in Christian music. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, in in researching for Electric Jesus, I did dig in deep to the '70s stuff, and that's my favorite. I love all the Jesus freaks. Um, I love that music. I recently had the opportunity to be up in Chicago and go to Japuza and talk to Glenn Kaiser, and there's just kind of like an amazing you feel like you're you're touching a piece of history just being there you know that being the chicago offshoot of what happened in california the ideas of expo 72 just that whole idea is amazing to me i think with your recommendation john i found an old lp of expo 72 like the official record of that and i bought it it's probably the most expensive piece of vinyl i own (laughs) but i just i i I felt like i um i want to connect to that and the film the jesus music well i mean it was just really fun as soon as i started watching i couldn't stop i felt like i was taking a tour in an 
CCM exhibit at a Disney park, maybe. You know, like you get in the little, you <laughs> wait in the queue, you get in the, you get in the car, and you just float through this little water ride, and you see like, there's Larry Norman, and oh my gosh, that's Amy Grant. You know, like it was that. Uh, I was delighted. I was delighted. And so I would say, you know, for people that are have touched that that music or have some experience with those artists, you're, I mean, you're just in for a treat. You know, every five or six minutes, there's somebody new that pops up, and you're like, oh yeah, them. You know, like <laughs> it, uh, you guys do a great job of keeping keeping it moving along and um, reminding us where we are in the history of that music and bringing up, you know, some of the key issues of those moments. And so yeah, it was it was a blast. Thanks, Chris. You let the people know that Jesus cares. Wait a minute, wait a minute. This is the big build-up. Just to let you know it's rock and roll. It's interesting to me because having been a fan of this and kind of formed by it since I was so little, I was surprised even as a teenager in the 80s how few Christian rock or CCM fans had any clue about anything that happened five years earlier than whatever year we were in. And Christian music has for a long time done a pretty poor job, but really in the last 10, 15 years has just not even tried to do any work talking about anything that's more than about 18 months old. Even at the old True Tune store, we used to sell those exact records on vinyl for, you know, pennies, you know, for a, a, bu- a couple bucks because so few people wanted them. But in the 90s, you know, even at the height of the tooth and nail era, we still found that the really gritty Jesus music of the late 60s and early 70s actually kind of made sense and got a little bit more respect and traction from mainstream audiences than a lot of CCM music did. Like it it kind of resonated with our audience and our audience were college students and they were people off the street and they kind of dug the lo-fi, gritty, in-your-face kind of nature a little bit more than the polished, presentational, heavily marketed CCM thing. But CCM just seemed to have no interest in it. And so I was kind of, uh, I was pleasantly surprised that when I first saw the, even the trailer you put together, yeah. that that much of the industry was was finally coming together to, uh, to talk right. about this stuff. Um, what are you, Andy, most uh, excited about people seeing and learning? Like what, what are some things that, that when you were doing this surprised you and that you learned and that you're, you're, you can't wait for people to see when this thing finally comes out? Yeah, John, I, you know, I think the cool thing for me I mean, and what you're saying is accurate, you know, because uh, when, when we were interviewing Stephen Kirsch Chapman, I just said, you know, ask the question, for those of us that have seen people like yourself that have led, you know, the race for a couple of laps or several laps, or in his case, you know, tons of laps, getting that point in your career where you turn around and you hand the baton to fresh legs, what does that moment feel like? And he, uh, he got emotional. He said, it's been the hardest part of my career because those of us that have done that christian music isn't big on legacy and so we don't know where we fit now and then with uh kirk franklin when i went and showed him the doc we were sitting in his studio in dallas 
And Kirk, when it got to the part where you were talking, John, because you play kind of one of our historians that kind of guides us through the film, uh, and you do it extremely well. I mean, you're like the rain man of Christian music. You know so much <laughs> that's, information. That's actually it's a just, pretty good way to describe it. It's just <laughs> wind them up and let them go. It'd be like, you know, 10 hours later, I don't know what happened. But uh, yeah. uh, we, we usually just went until your voice gave out. But that's it was right. incredible. Right. But but when it got to the point where you were talking about with Kirk Franklin, with talking about Stomp, saying, sorry, CCM, that's not your song. <laughs> that's Kirk going to the mainstream and you playing catch-up. Kirk sat back in his chair and he's like, finally <laughs> somebody said it <laughs> that's great and so you know it was cool to see to give each of these artists a platform to really define who they are rather than people defining it for them and so um you know i think from the outside there is a portion of of them uh either seeing as fringe music or even categorizing us as as cheesy or churchy or any of that kind of stuff but when you look at it from the standpoint like chris was talking about of those early pioneers uh, of these people that had an encounter that was authentic and real that they didn't even know how to really put into words yet and they had to do it through their music and that music didn't exist and so they carved out a style of music that didn't exist before that period and moment of time that's incredibly rebellious and it's incredibly romantic so people that may not even know the music can watch a, a movie like one of ours and say, okay, that's relatable. That's somebody trying to find their place in life, to find out where they fit and to find out. And so I think those themes come loud and clear. And then we also, the thing I was really excited about was we really explored the humanity of these artists. Instead of, you know, so much of the time, the audience that I'm a part of tends to put these people on a pedestal and say that they need to be, you know, a trophy to remind us of perfection. And they don't realize that the artists, I mean, they're human and they're flawed. Uh, and that's where the beautiful art comes from. And so one of my favorite quotes was when we were interviewing Bill Gaither. You know, I'll never forget Jerry Falwell asking me, I've heard some stories about the lifestyles of some of, some of the artists. Are they true? I said, probably are. I said, Jerry, if you're waiting for me to get a room full of unflawed artists, it's not going to happen. These are human beings who have been gifted in a special kind of a way, and they're trying to work through it in these earthly bodies, and sometimes they make mistakes. And, uh, and he said it with a lot of emotion, and I was like, dang, that'll preach. And so I think there's moments that really, I think, portray uh, the humanity uh, of the music that maybe sometimes we don't get to see on CCM radio. And so it was a really cool moment to kind of delve into those stories. And part of that reason uh, is it started with Amy Grant. Amy was our first interview and Amy's been an angel in our lives, the same as your life I know and and many other people that come in contact with her. Uh, She's the best of us. And she has just consistently displayed that. And when, uh, when we called up Amy said, would you like to do this? She said, Nobody knows this, but I'm having open heart surgery in about a month. And she said, I would love to sit down and do it before I do that. And so we actually set up the camera outside the window of her house with a tent, with a two-way radio inside to ask questions so that, um, that we protected her from being exposed to COVID or any of that kind of stuff. And she gave one of the most raw inter- interviews that I've heard her give. And because she was just like, I got nothing to lose. Let's just let's just let it all hang out. Uh, and and I thought that that vulnerability w- was contagious to all the other artists that wanted to be a part of it. So it was a cool process to do. And you say, why, why, why? 
Chris, was there anything in the film that surprised you? Anything that you did not expect to, to see? Oh, I mean, so much. So much. Um, to your point, Andy, um, that vulnerability you're talking about with Amy Grant, the scene you just talked about with Bill Gaither. You know, in the past year, I've, um, with my film, but also just thinking about the evangelical culture I grew up in, um, which has become more maybe a a political term instead of a theological <laughs> yeah, term now. Sadly. Um, you know, it's caused us to, uh, those of us who are thinkers or <laughs> about these things, that, you know, go back and think, like, what is it, what do these things mean and where do they come from? And, and that can be, you know, some people do that and lose their faith. Yeah. Some people do it and become, like, just angry or bitter. Some people do it and feel great in a year where i've read jesus and john wayne and seen the jesus music i think both are essential documents Mm -hmm. for evangelicals trying to process where you came from and where you're going um they're not too academic these are works where we can look at things and look at them with clear eyes i didn't know anything about that dynamics of dc talk just that DC Talk is probably the penultimate, like the biggest, yeah. you know, kind of Christian band moment that happens in CCM, and it happens really fast. Yeah, and it's three really uh, sincere guys who are just like <laughs> hanging on by their fingernails <laughs> yeah. to this thing. Um, so I, it just it just built a lot of um, empathy for me. Thanks, man. I, I mean, I think the cool thing, you know, I, I was telling somebody the other day that I remember when I first ordered my first box of Columbia House ten tapes for a dollar or ten tapes for a penny, a penny uh, and, yeah. and 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 I think that's kind of like your 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 island must list playlist yeah. is <laughs> is those whatever those ten you know first tapes they're kind of seared in your memory. But I remember <laughs> the first one in that group. I mean, it was like it was it was Jars of Clay's first album, Rebecca St. James God and and uh audio adrenaline bloom and then dc taught jesus freak and so that was like the music that kind of got me into it and so sitting down with the guys was a lot of fun but with toby when we sat down uh the first 30 minutes he was kind of sizing me up because we knew each other but not well and every few minutes of the interview he'd interrupt and be like is that light supposed to be there and I'd be like, well, yeah, Toby. Or he'd be like, what's the angle? I mean, I'm, I'm, I mean, I'm sorry, but I, I, I don't know if that's the best angle. And, and he would just, he'd be like, is that, is that really how you want to ask the question? And then about 30 minutes into the interview, he stopped and he kind of lets out a breath. And he's like, okay, I've never talked about this before. Let's talk. And then he just kind of went there. And I was like, oh, my gosh. But I think the thing that was cool was just understanding the necessity of friction in creating great art. And so a lot of groups like DC Talk, the amount of friction was just visceral to kind of create some of the music that we love the most. And that's where the complicated human beings come into play. God used them in really amazing ways, but they were working it all out on stage, sometimes, you know, coming to blows on stage, uh, trying to figure (laughs) it out. And that that made kind of really interesting, you know, music. And so I kind of sense that in, in your movie too, is just like, I loved, kind of the flawed characters and kind of the misfits kind of angle 
to this kind of underground music that I didn't really know existed before I did the doc. You know, I think I learned uh, more than I ever knew that I could learn from sitting and listening to to John's uh, exposition on the subject. And it was amazing, just all the little details, even the po- a lot of stuff that I would have loved to included uh, in the doc. But just that that music, especially the metal scene, what was it you said in the doc, John, you said it was decadent. It was decadent. Mm-hmm. And it was just just so interesting to sit down like with with Michael Sweet, like with that interview, you know, with Striper, uh, the only reason he said yes is he said, I haven't really known where I fit in the Christian music kind of legacy. Mm-hmm. He said, but the one person that showed me kindness all those years ago was Michael W. Smith. And he said, I'll do this if he's involved. And so he gave an interview and just, you know, that just was really interesting and human. So that's a, that's a part <coughs> of the music that I find really uh, that's new and I, I'm still learning about it, but there's a lot of great drama there that I, I think you mind well in your film. In the summer of 1986, I ran sound for a Christian heavy metal band. Jesus loves you. And he can forgive you. Stop it! No matter what you've done. We do. Can he forgive you for playing so many sh- I know, I know. Christian heavy metal. People think it's a joke. You suck! But it wasn't a joke to me. The first time I saw you, girl, something told me I needed to be with you in Christ. You're my missing rib, girl. And we gotta put that phone back. Right where it belongs. Here, girl. Just below my heart! Take a quick break, but don't go anywhere. We'll be right back with Andy Irwin and Chris White right after this. We recently blew past the 50,000 downloads mark, which is very exciting around here. Thank you for continuing to tell your friends about this show. If you have taken the time to write and post a review and give us a five-star rating at Apple Podcasts, that means so much. If not, please do. Please keep posting links and inviting folks from your world into this conversation. Our best and pretty much only marketing is you. If you are interested in becoming a sponsor on this show, drop me a line at jjt at truetunes.com. I want to take a minute to thank our Patreon backers. We're really still just getting started with the Patreon thing, but our Zoom hangs have been a lot of fun. We even did a surprise live stream concert and interview with Romer one night. Our patrons get early access to shows, and we send them special higher quality audio files that they can download. If you're loving this show and would be willing to donate a few bucks a month to help us do what we do, you can find the link on the show notes page or go to patreon.com slash truetunes and check it out. There is a lot more we are hoping to do with this show, and having a little more financial support would definitely make that possible sooner. Thanks so much. Okay, back to my conversation with Andy Irwin and Chris White. 
I got into Christian alternative rock and stuff in about 1983, so a little bit before the, the Electric Jesus story is set in 1986. I heard a radio station in Chicago start to play Res Band and Striper and even U2 and The Alarm. They, they were very eclectic in what they played between 9 and midnight, and I got super excited and used to tape the show every night and then um, go try to find these records, which were really hard to find sometimes. So I signed up for The Word Record and Tape Club, you know, all the Christian music, <laughs> oh, wow. you know, 10 records. I was That's so excited, awesome. and then I got the catalog, and I could not find 10 albums worth a penny. <laughs> I got four or five, you know, I got Randy Stonehill and I got a couple things, but then I was trying to fill out the rest of the five and they all just, I could tell from the album covers how bad they were going to be. And I got on the phone with the person there and I said, you got to tell me, is there anything here for the other five? And the guy on the phone was like, for a kid like you, no, there's not. <laughs> just had to admit. And so I'm like, this get is doubles. This is, get more. Get doubles for so, you. So you know what he did? He said, take yeah, take these. They're really popular, and then take them to a local Christian bookstore where there's somebody who knows what's going on and trade them. And here's some stuff you should go get. And he told me about the 77s and some other bands like that. And yep. so that's what I did. I got you know popular Sandy Patty or something like that, and I took it to a Christian bookstore <laughs> and I traded it for heavy metal stuff. <laughs> That's so that's the kind of kid I was when I was 13, and I was a hustler for, for this stuff. I was like a, a and street Andy, dealer. Andy, that's how John and I met. I was that operator on the other end. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> I love this. I love that well, I'm you, kidding. you come up with a new one of those. That's oh, like my God. That's brilliant. That's uh, so, uh, Nick so, uh, so Chris, so Electric Jesus, for those of you who don't know somehow listening to the show, and I'm assuming there will be a few million new listeners because Andy's on the show today. Um, Electric Jesus is a fictional story about a Christian heavy metal band in 1986 uh, who has the potential to really break through. Their goal is to make it to a big show. If they do well at that show, they're going to get to open for Striper and Motley Crue on the Heaven and Hell tour. Will they make it? Will they go through? And they got to struggle with the question of, are we going to play for a mainstream audience? Or are we going to keep playing churches? Which is definitely one of the questions in Andy's movie as well. That's definitely been one of the questions yeah. that Christian artists have been asking in real life all the way along. So, Chris, uh, you've had this film out uh, at the film festival level for about a year. You've been out showing this to mainstream audiences about a Christian rock band. Tell me about just the generally speaking, how has it been going over and what are the reactions you're getting to a movie like this and who's watching it and that kind of stuff? Well, we've come out in a, in a year that's difficult, not just to make a movie, as Andy's pointed out, but also to figure out how to put a movie out in the world. And mm -hmm. we're, we're with a really great sales agent that we love. And, um, you know, every time a big festival would come up, you know, it'd be like... Um, you know, uh, or a big a market like Toronto or Berlin or Cannes, you know, like you're always like, is this the moment? Is this the moment? And we, we you know, we finally had a great moment and we've been picked up by, a, at least for North America, by a really terrific distributor, 1091 Pictures. And I would just say, like, I don't know if you would, you know, when we conceived of the movie, you know, I'm making a rock band movie. That's one of my favorite genres of movies. I've always wanted to make a rock band movie. I like rock band movies about bands that fail. I prefer those to, you know, biopics about people that are awesome and just succeed <laughs> and everything. I like the commitments. I like that thing you do. I like Almost Famous. I like Spinal Tap. Um, these are things about 
bands that want to be great and it doesn't quite work out for them. So I knew I wanted to work in that world. The world I knew or I thought I knew until I met you, John, was uh, (laughs) Christian rock music. I did know evangelical youth culture. You know, that's, I grew up in a Southern Baptist church in West Columbia, South Carolina in the mid 80s. So I knew that really well and Christian music was a big part of that culture, certainly. I've had so many great conversations. I don't know, I've, I've talked, I've, I'm, I'm friends with a lot of Christians who make movies and Christians who make Christian movies and there does seem to be an interest in making movies that people who aren't Christians see and want to engage with and talk about and think about. And I mean, I've just spent a year doing that. You know, I've been programmed by people who, in festivals, we've been in 35 festivals um, wow. in the past year. and. I've been programmed by people who say, I'm not a Christian. <laughs> you know, what a weird movie. Where did this uh, come from? I was on um, an interview with a, a, it's kind of a rock and roll talk show on Sirius XM with a, a DJ when we were in Los Angeles a couple weeks ago. And she asked me the question, like, where did you get the idea for the name of the band, 316? And I was like, you know, from John 316. She's like, I don't know what that is. What is that? <laughs> you know, and right. it's like, oh, the things oh, we well, assume, right? Really, right. you yeah. know, like, and you know, um, yeah. and then to have her, you know, say back to me ideas and responses to the movie that I found to be, you know, as a creator, it's your movie. You know, once I give it to you, you figure out what it means and you decide. But to have somebody like that, you know, say it's almost like that movie was actually about that girl and it wasn't about the band at all. And yeah, <laughs> yeah, I think that was kind of like um, when I was growing up, I think I missed a lot of the stories that were happening around me. That's kind of what I learned mm. making this movie. I wasn't paying attention to other people uh, that much. I was I was paying attention to Chris, but I wasn't really paying attention to all the stories that were going on around me. So just, you know, um, having, having that dialogue around a film is always uh, a joy. And then again, you know, like I, I, I tell people, we have two big people that love Electric Jesus tend to be either um, Christian rockers who show up, find it, feel seen. They'll say that. I feel seen. I feel like I can't believe that. That was me and my friends. And then people that are just not Christians, maybe even anti-Christians, maybe don't care about religion or heavy metal even that just find it to be curious and weird and you know maybe like a napoleon dynamite kind of thing which it is that it certainly is that and so i kind of have fans on both those sides um at least those are the ones that seem to be the most vocal or those are the ones that grab the filmmaker after the screening and say you know i want to talk right. to you after a couple of shows our youth minister connected us to an old friend of his who managed christian bands well folks I work for a company in Chicago called Harvest Concert Ministries. We book concert tours for gospel groups, promote them, manage the bands. Now, I've been doing this for seven years now, and I have seen this industry absolutely explode. I see no reason that you boys can't be opening for Mylon or Steve Camp or who knows, maybe even Striper by the time school starts back in the fall. I am here to steal you from your mamas and daddies for the summer. Take you out on the road, cut an album, see what happens. 316 on tour, all four members and a sound man. 
the Rock and Roll Road Show. Praise the Lord and pass the ammunition. He said that he had your number. When you and I watched this at your place, you you gave me an analogy that I thought was really interesting, and I'm I'm not going to remember it specifically, so maybe you can share it again. But you talked about like a gap or a, a hole or something that's um, that Christians who are artists who are trying that there's a gap that we yeah, got to worry chasm. about a chasm. Yeah, can you can you explain that and kind of how that relates to to this yeah. situation that Chris is in and really kind of that yeah. we've all been living in? <laughs> it, it, well, I mean, I think any artist that comes from a kind of a, a niche genre that wants to kind of broaden their audience, it faces that. So it's not just something that is just as Christians that we, we face. I mean, there's other, uh, uh, you know, movies that have struggled with that over the years, whether it's the, the, the horror genre for a long time was seen as this cheesy slasher films or or you know or superhero movies for a long time before Tim Burton came along were that was the the joke you know so before batman that was just kind of this little weird thing on the side so for for people especially people of uh, of faith that are trying to do it it's just the dilemma you have is we all would love to make you know great art and con- connect with a broader mainstream audience it's something we all dream of but uh just finding how to cross that chasm from your core audience to a, a more what what we'd kind of categorize more as the benevolent skeptic like chris was saying those people that come up and they're not hostile towards the material at all but it's just not familiar to them at all and they're curious and we all want to connect with that and i think a lot of times you know as christians at least i've struggled with this for sure is we you know kind of go out and we say we're going to make the first you know of our kind and we're going to go out and we're going to connect with that mainstream but we kind of negate to find something that connects with the core base of fans to make enough noise. And we find ourselves kind of in a chasm chasm between two big cliffs and, you know, we we kind of die in the chasm. We fall or we we drowned, you know, in that that big vast ocean between those two. And, and, you know, what the hope is and what what we've, you know, tried to do is figure out how to survive it. We've had a, a couple of films where, We've just washed up on the other shore and broken even, and we've had a couple. We've we've had one where we didn't. We kind of drowned, and then finally, uh, you know, Woodlawn was that for us. That when we did Woodlawn, we 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 I loved that movie. It was my first A plus cinema score, and I, I loved making it. It was probably the most deeply personal thing that I've ever done because I grew up hearing that story. But when we got it out there, it just didn't connect to the broader audience. We had spent too much, but we found like we found our voice. And we said on this next go around, we want to make as much noise as possible with the core, uh, with I Can Only Imagine. And it made enough noise to where then at opening weekend, you know, did $17 million on 1,600 screens and made it. And then that's where the, the curious kind of the benevolent skeptics 
came in the door. And so then we, we looked at the data and said, the data is spiking off the charts in Burbank. Nobody goes sees a, a film that has to do with faith in Burbank. It's, it's kind of a, a jaded industry town. So we sent a spy over there to see what it was. And the whole, the whole theater was full of suits from all the studios with note cards, you know, <laughs> taking notes of why did this work? Right. And, and so it's just, it's always the challenge that I think for any of us, I feel that challenge even now is how do we broaden the taste of the audience that we serve to reach the core people that we want to outside the church, but do it in a way where we don't die in the chasm. And I think, you know, and we're trying to do that now with, you know, we've got a, a new movie we're working on called American Underdog that's a football movie that, that's a Christmas, it's got a Christmas Day release with Lionsgate, but it's they're marketing it as a mainstream film because it is, uh, but it's a whole new way to, okay, how do we make sure we cross that chasm? But I think what Chris did brilliantly that I like is he, he made something that was universally relatable because it was about this group of misfits. And that was something that plays regardless of what you believe. But he did it in a way that had a wink and a nod to the people that grew up in that. And and I think there's a lot of charm in it of kind of being self-aware and kind of doing it in a way that we're able to kind of laugh at ourselves. And then when he got to the point where he turned on the heart, when he I won't give away the ending, but when you made that turn at the end, like it got me emotionally. I was like, I'm not, ex- I wasn't expecting it to take that turn. And good, you know, dramedies tend to have a way of letting you put down your guard, and then they have that moment where they turn on the heart, and it's like, oh my gosh, that that was profound. I wasn't expecting it, but it didn't feel like a a message moment. Mm-hmm. It felt like a very earned experience, and so I think that's always the struggle for for filmmakers on crossing that chasm of how do we get something that works has a duality to it it works with the core that they see one thing and then to a mainstream audience they see something different and you unite that audience to make enough noise for it to make its money back and that's always the challenge hey it's not your fault I'm the one that convinced them to play the gig which was the right thing to do listen I'm going is your dad here? Let me talk to him. No, I mean like I'm really going like right now. Without him, I I can't go back home. What? Sarah, you can't. that's not right. You have to respect your father. You have to talk to him. He doesn't listen. He won't understand. I need you. You're the one that needs to go home. But there are people who are dying and going to hell. Can't God just be glad for us? Because we're happy and having fun, making music. When you're thinking about the Jesus music film and it's a documentary, who do you think the audience is for that, and how does that thinking apply to documentaries? It seems to me that maybe the documentaries is its own. It's a little its bit own, different. Yeah, it's it's different. I mean, documentaries are always a labor of love. Um, this was very much our love letter to the people that shaped our career, and so uh, it was kind of the most personal thing that we had done. You know, I I think that. Um, uh, with docs, it, it, you know, it really they've they've gained a lot of momentum over the years, uh, especially in recent years. From, you know, the "Won't You Be My Neighbor" to, uh, I mean, that was earth shattering. I watched that. I watched that actually at Sundance. Talk about okay. Talk about a film that crossed the chasm. Yeah. Oh my gosh, I was at Sundance that year, 
uh, I was just there, just sitting in the crowd, and I, I went to uh, a, 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 two screenings that had to do about faith. And the first one was very jaded and kind of chew on glass, just over angsty, and it just really didn't have an audience. And it was watching a film die a, a miserable death. It was it was really painful to watch. It had a big cast, but it was like it was really too jaded for any audience that really loved anything about the faith message uh, or the faith background. And then for the this, the secular audience, a couple of the things they said early on in the film. The mainstream audience instantly, the, the festival audience instantly hated it. And so it really kind of died in that chasm. You watched it kind of go down in flames. But then right after that, we came back and sat down for the Mr. Rogers doc, Won't You Be My Neighbor? And there was just an innocence, a wide-eyed innocence that was universally relatable about this guy that was a Christian, a deacon in his church, a conservative Republican. It was just like all those things were put into this film of who Mr. Rogers was. But through this idea of somebody that was universally relatable and had this innocence through the simple question of what's the power of kindness. And I watched this crowd, this kind of jaded crowd that had just killed this other film, just universally embrace it. And it was powerful. It was palpable. So I think with a doc, it's, you know, it's, it's, um, you know, I think it's a challenge to figure out how to find that audience. But the, the cool thing about a doc is it also has a real great life, uh, you know, through streamers and things like that. So, you know, Lionsgate really pushed us. We Originally, we were thinking about doing it just as a for streamers. And they pushed us that, hey, we think that this could be theatrical and we want to give it a shot. And then Hulu would put it out after that. So it was an experiment that we were nervous about at first because, number one, how do you cram that much material into two hours and two how do you connect with the audience I, f- I feel like the primary audience um you know our first kind of our core base that we're firmly aiming for are are the fans of the music you know for sure i think the main point of the doc is just remember the music we love and remember why we love it especially coming off two years where the music was kind of taken away because of you know not being able to go to concerts and all those things and the and the music festivals that you love so much and so just remembering the power of the music. So it's really kind of to that fan that, that that's going to be our first wave. But then we hope that, you know, if it does, makes enough chatter to kind of engage with the benevolent skeptic, those people that are just moviegoers are be like, hey, what's playing tonight? It's a music movie. Let's check it out. What's the noise about this movie? You know, and you see other films that do that. Like, you know, when, when Crazy Rich Asians came out, like it was very firmly based to to represent an underrepresented audience uh, an asian audience that had not seen uh, a full cast uh in a comedy like that that represented their culture i love the idea of you being that um uh that what did you call it a sympathetic audience member or yeah uh, benevolent benevolent yeah yeah. benevolent benevolent skeptic because i i looked at that movie the same way i was just like what is this world this is great i know nothing about this right how awesome which which is the idea. It's just like, uh, you know, the benevolent skeptic. The idea is, you know, it's you're never going to be able to convince the bigot, somebody that is kind of entrenched in their beliefs. They don't want to have anything to do with whatever you're presenting. But the benevolent skeptic doesn't have anything against it. They're just not aware. And so when Crazy Rich Asians, you know, comes out and it makes enough noise with an underrepresented audience, and then people come in the door and they're like, what's all the noise about? And they watch the movie. Next thing you know, on a Friday night, I'm watching Crazy Rich Asians. And I, I loved it. I was like, it's great. I loved the experience. That was hysterical. But it was because, you know, in that equation, it's a benevolent skeptic. So, you know, I think especially in a, in a movie like yours, Chris, it's just like the idea 
of having something that that the the audience that did grow up in that that was a part of that can find relatable and finds funny and finds interesting and then there's something universally relatable uh, as it goes into the journey that there's the benevolent skeptic comes in the door they watch it and they're like huh I didn't know anything about this world but it's super interesting and so mm-hmm. that that's always kind of the goal is how do you you don't have to choose one or the other how do you appeal to both think though you said that the audience for the jesus music were fans of the genre so that's going to probably inform your editing decisions especially when you know you're going from an eight episode series down to a two-hour thing and you know how much you're going to have to cut so much stuff um the benevolent skeptic even the open-minded are there's going to be things that you're going to have to do and choices you're going to have to make that are going to eliminate out. They're going to select out some of those people because they're going to find that even if they're hanging there a certain amount of time in order for them to stay, like if you don't at some point create in a documentary, provocative questions, right. uh, some friction, some kind of point where people can go, huh, what you know, I'm, I'm going to learn something here in a way that's relevant. Then it, it really is more of a, a family reunion or a promotional right. kind of a, a nostalgic thing and um, is that where those decisions the kind of tough the tough things you guys had to do in going from right. that episodic thing down to the feature length thing yeah I mean it definitely was I mean I think we had to narrow the focus and you know you, you can't try to please everyone otherwise nobody's happy we really tried to walk that line that the core fans are going to get what they really want out of the moments in the film and especially with these heroes that you get to see on the screen. But to make it an interesting story, we had to find those things that were universally relatable to a broader audience. And, you know, some of those things that we had to explore are, you know, kind of the nature of what makes an artist and where does the art come from and where does the humanity and the struggle kind of rub up against uh, the gift and the message? And why does the audience really need them to sit on that platform and to sit on that pedestal um you know at what cost and uh so we tried to explore a lot of those questions and then like talk about some of the friction you know that what created the great art is also what drove it apart that finally split up a band like dc talk after 10 years i would not wish fame fortune notoriety on anybody anonymity is not a bad thing trust me i would demand things like push, push, push for you to see this. And if you didn't, you were an idiot. <laughs> the friction I had with Toby usually played out on stage. It was more like, you know, he'd give me a death stare. Toby and Mike would literally argue over anything. Devin can be a handful at times. And Kevin and I, when we love, we love hard. We fight, we fight hard. We were just three individuals performing on stage not a tight close unit like we've been throughout the years became very apparent that we were all just kind of like going through the motions at a certain point i felt like it's time to take a break i just wanted some peace 
which is universally relatable. Yeah, right. I mean, it's like it's the tale of of a band. I mean, like right. even the you know the movies that that Chris referenced, especially like almost famous. It's just you know, which is brilliant. It's just the idea of you know, it's something that's universally relatable, regardless of your what you believe. But I think mm-hmm. for us, it, it it creates an opportunity to start a a, a a conversation about our hope, and that's kind of I think where we kind of come back to at the end is kind of the hope uh, of what the music does for us and what the underlying real uh, heartbeat message of redemption is. Yeah. And so, you know, I think that's what we try to do. And with each film, you, it's not necessarily doc versus feature. It's just trying to figure out what does the movie want to be? What really is it? So, like, we're doing, we got a movie that's coming out at Christmas right now, American Underdog, starring Zach Levi and uh, Anna Paquin. It was Shazam, right? Yeah, Shazam. Shazam's yeah. playing a football star. When we got into it, um, really what it wanted to be was a really great sports movie. And when Lionsgate saw it, they got it, and they decided, hey, this deserves a kind of a mainstream release. It wasn't really that we tried something really different than other ones. It was just it was what the movie wanted to be. And so uh, I think authenticity is a big part of that. So I think for Jesus, the, the Jesus music, the story is authentic to what, uh, what it really wanted to be. I feel, feel like it feels honest. And I think for the core fan that loves the music, they'll walk away with something. And for the for the benevolent skeptic that walks in the door, I think we ask some good questions that allow a more um, universally relatable discussion. From the hands that came down, from the side it came down, from the feet it came down and ran to the ground. Obviously, the bulk of this conversation and the subject of the Jesus Music film has been about how the Jesus music of the late 60s and 70s evolved into the contemporary Christian music of today. But what about the stuff that didn't? As unlikely as it might seem, Jesus has been a near constant presence in popular music and mainstream culture. So, while one branch of this family tree grew into the Christian music industry, what about the believers who kept working out their salvation on the pop, rock, R&B, country, and alternative charts? We've loaded up the jukebox with just a few examples of Jesus on the mainline, from radio's distant past to right here and now. Jesus is a soul Country artist Lawrence Reynolds only had a minor hit with his recording of Jesus is a Soul Man, a song he wrote and recorded in 1970. But the impact of the song, with its hip lingo and easy sing-along style, went way beyond the charts. Johnny Rivers put out a rockier version later that same year, and the song was later covered by Conway Twitty, Roy Clark, and others. Doobie Brothers' 1972 hit Jesus Is Just Alright is among the most popular examples of Jesus getting name-checked in the rock and roll mainstream. 
though they were actually the third group to cut the song, after the original gospel version by the Art Reynolds singers in 1966 and the somewhat cheeky cover by the Birds in 1969, the Doobies version was by far the biggest hit. Sure, they seemed to be cashing in on the Jesus rock trend that had driven so many songs up the charts in those years, but they took the song seriously and played it well. I believe that I failed to mention that there's a lack of recognition when it comes to his position. Cause if Christ can't be crossed over, then I'll keep my beat up Nova. Some religious folks balked at the just all right line, thinking the band was suggesting that Jesus was only okay, but nothing more. When Arthur Reynolds had written the song, however, he was using the term all right the way the youth used it, meaning exceptional or very good. When DC Talk covered the song and made it a huge Christian rock hit in the 90s, they made a few subtle lyrical tweaks, including shifting that line to Jesus is still all right. Rolling Stones were holed up in Keith Richards' house in the south of France, experimenting with all kinds of musical influences, ideas, and mind-altering substances when they pieced together Exile on Main Street. Blues, country, and even gospel music were all in the mix, and Mick Jagger can even be seen in church in Los Angeles during the recording of Aretha Franklin's Amazing Grace album, which we talked about in the last episode. The Stones were definitely becoming an album band, and Exile ranks among the best in the annals of rock. And one of the most fascinating cuts is a strangely Pentecostal-sounding shuffle that sounds largely improvised. I Just Want to See His Face offers the very simple, but I think critical observation that when things get really dark, what people want is not to see or hear people walking and talking about Jesus. They want to actually see Jesus. When I was a kid, there was no scarier band than Black Sabbath. Anti-rock preachers loved to single them out as a perfect example of the satanic essence of rock and metal. So imagine my surprise when a friend showed me the lyrics to several of their songs. None were as openly Christian, even evangelistic, as After Forever from the band's third album, Master of Reality, released in 1971. With lyrics composed by the band's bassist, Geezer Butler, After Forever failed to chart anywhere, probably more to do with the heaviness of the sound than the message, but it has lived on as a fan favorite and has been covered by many bands, including Biohazard and Striper. Oh my, oh my, oh my, what if it was true? And oh my, oh my, oh my, tell me is it true? Did he, did he, did he die upon that 
could do a whole show about all of the Jesus songs that made it to radio between about 1967 and 1973. But what about outside of that window? Everyone knows about U2, though few likely realize that when they were teens in Dublin, they were well aware of some of the more imaginative Jesus music artists and considered themselves to be fans of artists like Larry Norman and Daniel Amos. But they obviously chose to stay in the mainstream and still regularly write from a faith perspective. Again, we could do a whole show on them alone. The Violent Femmes, who were known for particularly profane hits such as Blister in the Sun and Add It Up, and featured a raw acoustic punk sound, regularly brought gospel ideas into their work as well. But on their second album, Hallowed Ground, they went full gospel with Jesus Walking on the Water. Lead singer Gordon Gano even helped form a gospel blues side project called The Mercy Seat in 1987. for something completely different. Back in 1973, a nun from Adelaide, South Australia, recorded a snazzy pop version of the Lord's Prayer, and like the Edwin Hawkins singer's Oh Happy Day four years earlier, it made it to number four on the Billboard Hot 100. Sister Janet Mead had been using contemporary rock music in specialized masses and on her own radio show to reach the youth in her area of Australia. She went into a local recording studio and worked with the producer to come up with this arrangement. With nothing but an independent label behind it, the song climbed to number one in Australia and then traveled around the world. A&M Records distributed in the US where it eventually sold over a million copies. I was four years old when all of that was going down and my mom loved it. When the song came on the radio, we all sang along. My mom sang it to my brother and me at bedtime. I ended up singing it to my own kids. Here's the thing about this song that really makes me think. It's not actually very cool. It's not particularly clever. It is simply the Lord's Prayer taken directly from scripture and set to a singable melody. So what happened here and what might it mean? What we do know is that the success of the song had nothing to do with an industry, a business plan, or a compelling sales job. It was also deep into the Jesus on the radio trend, probably in the waning phase, in fact. I wish I had a profound answer for you. All I can say is that the existence of this hit and the continuing periodic return of faith-laced songs into the public consciousness challenges some of my previous preconceptions about the potential for spiritually informed art in the marketplace of ideas. 
Artists like Sufjan Stevens, 21 Pilots, Liz Weiss, Natalie Bergman, Chance the Rapper, Kendrick Lamar, and so many others are putting their work out there for all to hear. I think Jesus music was a lot more expansive and influential than many appreciated. And yes, some of it evolved into the CCM music that many love today, but some evolved in very different ways. We need to consider how that strain of Jesus music shaped things like Bob Dylan, U2, The Call, The Violent Femmes, Mindy Smith, Tom Waits, Johnny Cash, Switchfoot, Drew Holcomb, and so many others. Thank you. Before we completely shut down the jukebox, I want to leave you with a little bit of a once obscure gospel tune called Like a Ship Without a Sail by the Reverend T.L. Barrett and the Youth for Christ Choir. This little indie record was made in Chicago in 1971. It wasn't a major hit by any stretch, but oh, what a sound. Barrett was a pastor and a music leader in Chicago, and he ended up having some amazing musicians in his church in the 70s, including Donnie Hathaway and members of Earth, Wind & Fire. The album this song was on remained a sort of cult classic until the indie label Light in the Attic reissued it in 2010, where it received enthusiastic reviews from people like My Morning Jacket's Jim James and Radiohead's Colin Greenwood. The song was then sampled by Kanye West on Father Stretch My Hands Part 1 and 2 from the Life of Pablo album, and it was covered earlier this year by Leon Bridges and Keith Young. Be sure to look for the deluxe box set, I Shall Wear the Crown, which features more than three albums worth of Pastor Barrett's best music and sermons and a 10,000 word essay that helps put his life of service in context. That'll have to do it for the jukebox for now. 
but I've pulled together a Spotify mix with more than 60 songs that reflect moments when Jesus made it into the mainstream zeitgeist. You can find that link on the show notes page for this episode or under the True Tunes Spotify profile. But for now, let's get back to the interview lounge with Chris and Andy. So, uh, what kind of music do you listen to? <sighs> Quite a bit, actually. Uh, love metal, hard rock. Uh, love your guys' stuff. Um, let's see, I've been listening to Resban, Baron Cross, Blood Good, Leviticus, Jerusalem, Messiah Prophet, Philadelphia, Barnabas, uh, Daniel Band, Shout, and Saint, which I think is the heaviest of them all, of course. Um, but I could hear you guys playing with any of them. I've been listening to this new metal band called First Strike. Their album was produced by Mike Rowe of the 77s. I love the 77s, that whole post-punk new wave scene, bands like Youth Choir, The Lifesavers, and LSU, which is the new version of The Lifesavers. What's a favorite song each of you can think of from this weird world of either flat out Jesus music or just Christ haunted (laughs) rock and roll or gospel or whatever? What's a song that, that we can send each of you off with on this episode <laughs> I, I want to go to the mat with this I'm going to the mat with Lamu by Michael W. Smith Lamu, I, that's great yeah, I, I think that's a bit of a deep cut it's the big picture 1986 you know I like that year John but yeah, yeah, yeah. I love, uh, I can still I, I was driving to set shooting Electric Jesus a couple mornings and I would just listen to Lamu as I was, I was going into work <laughs> and being inspired uh let the day begin was usually my drive to work song by the call but lamu i'll go to the mat with that i think we need more believe it or not i actually had some people get upset and want to find controversy in lamu because they didn't know what the word meant so it must be a cultic (laughs) he says what the word means in the song They're not paying attention, so they just That's they were like, this has got to be a cultic. And I said, yep, um, it is. It definitely is. It must mean something backwards. So Lamu is Chris's song. Andy, what's yours? I love it. It's amazing to see how, how much this music affects people deeply. Like I had a conversation with Ryan Johnson that directed Knives Out. And I was like, why did you end your movie with a Larry Norman song? And he said, I grew up on this music. Mm-hmm. He said, the music I grew up on was Michael W. Smith and Amy Grant. And he said, you know, I was a youth group kid. And um, <laughs> and so it was it was kind of cool to see how, how uh, far reaching it is for me. You know, I, I like I the, the the moment in the film and the reason why I signed on to do the movie is I love the I love the song Jesus Freak and I just feel like um, what DC Talk did with that and how they kind of did kind of bust the uh, the walls that the, the status quo that had been set for them there um, in that moment in time and took a term that was a derogatory term from the 70s where the song where the the movie started and kind of redeemed it and said hey no this is kind of an anthem. Uh, kind of to be rebellious and say, no, you know, you know, we have a voice too, and so uh, that that would be my song. Kamikaze, my death is gain. I've been marked by my maker. 
Chris, how does that, um, how have you lived out that benevolent skeptic and that chasm reality uh, so far? I mean, you're, you're a new filmmaker. This is your first full-length feature film, and you've been in this foxhole for a long time with this film, and it's just now coming out. But what he's talking about with that idea of the chasm and the two shores, you know, and, and how does that resonate with you so far in your experience with uh, Electric Jesus? Our film is a, you know, it's a million dollar movie, which sounds a lot, you know, when somebody says million dollars, you know, that sounds like a lot of money, but it's not a lot of money in movies. So the path back to profitability, I guess, for investors and making it a business proposition is different than a movie that has eight, 10, 20 million dollars as a budget. So on one level, you know, there are certainly limitations to a smaller budget, but there's also maybe a freedom in that, you know, maybe that's where yeah. you find, uh, you know, like our, my friend Lee Isaac Chung's Minari that did have great critical Incredible. success. Um, but again, that's a, that's another, I think that's probably a million, million and a half, $2 million movie right there. Yeah. But it's also becomes a incredible personal statement that definitely uh, has a faith message in it. Um, so I'm not on that playing field, you know. So I, I haven't, you know, nobody asked me to change something in my script. No Hollywood person said, well, take the movie, but you got to do this to it. Um, no investor, you know, said, well, I don't know about this. Can you make it like this? I mean... What you get with Electric Jesus is a is is an artistic statement. It is it is my it, you know it's my expression. You know we'll see what happens with it. I've been in a cave for forty days, only a spark to light my way. I wanna give out, I wanna give in And this is our crime, this is our sin But I still believe, I still believe Through the pain and through the grief Through the lies, through the storms through the cries and through the wars, I still believe. I appreciate this conversation because this is similar to the type of tension that songwriters and artists have had, yep. really going mm -hmm. back to 1967, 1969, 1971. I could pull out records from the stacks here and play examples. Um, and maybe, you know, Bruce and I will. We kind of did in the Natalie Bergman episode a few episodes back of Jesus music kind of before CCM became a thing. Yeah. And one of the things that, that I wish there was time uh, to have delved into in the Jesus music film, and it's kind of a, a point of tension in Electric Jesus where these two things kind of have in common, is that question of... Um, are, are we making music for Christians? Is this music for the stadium of people there that are gathered like at Explo 72? Or are we as Christians just making music for whoever will find it? And the, the, you know, the, the fact that an industry emerged and Christian music became a genre and it, and it became successful, it, it's easy to kind of go back and write the history based on the success that you see 
But the fact is there were other Christians who said, well, no, actually, I'm going to go this way. And, you know, a group of four kids in Dublin decide after seeing early Christian Larry Norman and Daniel Amos and, you know, the British scene and the Jesus movement, they were like, well, we're going to go this way and they become you too. You know, and Bob Dylan does his thing in T-Bone Burnett. And now we have groups, you know, that are that are Christians working their faith into their music, but it's for the mainstream. And I think that's got to always be part of the conversation for Christians. I love that picture of the chasm. You know, is that a missional thing? Like we're called to go across that chasm? As a, or is the missionary always staying home where it's safe and they can raise support and they can, you know, th- it's going to be comfortable? Or sometimes, are, is it whether it's risky or whatever, we have to go across that chasm. That's part of yeah. our job as artists. Right. Part of our job as right. missions is to get over that, figure out a way. But when the industry has made it so comfortable for Christian filmmakers or Christian musicians to stay at home and become profitable then it disincentivizes and maybe doesn't even inspire or show a path for Christians who are artists to jump that jump that gap. I don't think a Christian who is an artist is is thinking about that. They need to have people I mean you need to have producers, you need to have people that are working with you that maybe are helping your vision connect the way you but I I mean when I'm writing a page I'm not thinking about the audience is me. I mean, I'm not thinking about, you know, will these people that listen to Christian radio, will they approve of the scene or not? I, I'm trying to tell a story and, and, and make art, and or I'm not even trying to make art, man. I'm just trying to tell a story. I'm not thinking about uh, what response, uh, you know, I'm not crafting an altar call. I'm not thinking of what response or how is this bringing people to Jesus. I'm not at all. <laughs> um, I'm simply... Um, grabbing on to some characters and their ideas and putting them on a on a journey. Sometimes I'm not even sure where it's going to end up. I mean, I figure it out pretty quick, but sometimes I don't. You know, when I'm starting to, exp- I don't know where it's going to be. If if we start acting these art, if we start telling these artists, you know, you're evil can evil and you've got to jump the Snake River with with your idea. So give me your ideas. That's not going to be art. That's just going right. to be uh, propaganda or cleverness. Or right. marketing branding. That's they. They need to be. I mean, to take care of your artists. If you care about that community, you have to put them. You have to. You have to give them a little place to go, and you have to encourage them to to create. And then when they come up with their weird thing, you be the smart guy. You figure out how to do the chasm. Don't make that artist do right. it, and don't okay. go back and tell the artist now we can't use this because you know we got this 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 gap we're trying to fill that it will not be it may be financially successful it may be um it may get you other opportunities to do other things but what you will have is you'll have a culture you'll have an audience that continues to be kind of placated and entertained and be a little ambivalent and you also have people that are calling themselves artists that are really just marketing people and (laughs) we don't need any more of that christian youth are now on the march. And as we're going to keep marching until millions of people have been brought into the kingdom of God on every continent. God bless you.
thank Andy Irwin and Chris White for indulging me in this three-way conversation. I trust this has been as interesting for all of you as it has been for me. And I do hope everyone will make sure to watch the Jesus Music and Electric Jesus films and let us know what you think. In fact, watch our Facebook page for info about some possible opening night live stream events and gatherings. For more information about Andy's film, visit thejesusmusic.movie. And for Chris's film, visit electricjesusfilm.com. That was a little bit of Sufjan Stevens' To Be Alone With You. I just love that song so much, and as I pull my soapbox out here, I'm thinking about the path Sufjan's artistry has taken since releasing that back in 2004. I know that some of the Jesus music we have been talking about had a certain impact and influence on him. When we talked to Daniel Smith of Danielson, we got a taste of what it was like to grow up as the son of a Jesus music pioneer. Dan's father, Lenny, wrote Our God Reigns and other songs from that era. Dan produced the Seven Swans album for Sufjan, from which this song was taken. And I know Lenny has spoken into Sufjan's journey as well. That song just struck me as a perfect example of Jesus music that defied the categorization of industry and marketing. As I think about Jesus music, both the kind that evolved into CCM and the kind that inspired some artists to stay in the mainstream, I'm struck again by just how complicated, messy, and potentially beautiful this story can be. Here we have some of the most sensitive stuff of life, faith, creativity, and community, sitting in a powder keg. I just had the profound honor of playing guitar and harmonica and singing, along with my wife Michelle, on a track that Phil Keggy assembled for a Randy Stonehill tribute album. To honor the 50th anniversary of the release of his debut, a slew of artists came together to cover his songs. Just to be able to contribute in a small way to a song with artists like Love Song, Paul Clark, Michelle Pilar, Rick Kua, Eve Sellis, Sherry Keggy, and others is crazy. Randy Stonehill was one of my first favorite artists. I'm still in disbelief. We can But I also still feel that Randy Stonehill, Phil Keggy, and so many of these artists should have been heard by a wider audience than they ever were. I'm frustrated, to be honest, when I see that artists of their caliber are now struggling to gather enough attention from either the Christian music industry or the mainstream, which has largely never even had a chance to hear them. I'm grateful to the Irwins for putting so much into the Jesus music film, and I truly hope it will tap millions of CCM fans into the spiritual energy and passion that shook a generation 50 years ago. But I wonder if it's enough. I'm equally excited for those same people to see Electric Jesus, but I'm even more eager for people who gave up on Christian music long ago to check that one out. Though Electric Jesus is fiction, it strikes pretty close to home for many of us. 
Which of our childish ways should we be glad to have behind us? I don't know if we need spandex to come back anytime soon, and I don't think the commingling of politics, music, and faith that happened as far back as Expo 72 did us any favors. But as we're chucking the silly stuff, did we accidentally lose some things that we should have hung on to? Did we miss the real point of the story? These two films provide some excellent opportunities for reflection. I know that a lot of the music I have loved would not have existed if this strange parallel universe had not been formed. That being said, I'm still sitting here thinking about where we are right now. Are the words of our mouths, whether sung or spoken, likely to draw people in or push them away? Are we genuinely responding to the world in which we live, resonating with the needs, concerns, and fears of our neighbors? Or are we merely seeking our own entertainment and amusement? In the case of the Irwin's Jesus music film, I surely hope there is more to come, and I cannot wait to see what Chris White comes up with next. And you can count on us to be here, listening for the good, the true, and the beautiful, wherever we find it. All right, I'm climbing off my soapbox now. That's going to do it for this episode of the True Tunes Podcast. You can find a complete list of all of the songs we used on the show notes page for this episode at truetunes.com. Make sure to sign up for the email list and leave us a good review and rating at Apple Podcasts. The contents of this podcast are protected by U.S. copyright law and are the intellectual property of Gyroscope Productions, with the exception of songs or clips that are from previously copywritten materials. Everything on this episode is used by permission or under fair use provisions. This program is intended for the private use of our listening audience. Gyroscope Productions can be reached at JJT at TrueTunes.com or P.O. Box 60401, Nashville, Tennessee, 37206. Until next time, this is JJT asking you to pass me the popcorn. Peace. Spit your eye, you father lies. Fight that dust. How do you feel about that, devil? I'm a feeling mighty low. Good.